this is going to be quite a lengthy <laughs> talk through so stick it on whilst you're walking to work or something <laughs> and we won't be offended if you skip through as well yeah it's fine if you if you your hero's getting into some sort of boring topic then feel free to skip so i'm here with charles maddox hello um who is also a contributor and collaborator in the magazine so we'll also go through his work which will be nice I don't know if I've actually said but I'm Lucy Avs and I'm the editor and founder of Gatekeeper. I'm going to start with going through issue 01 transaction. So we've got the magazine in front of us right now. The front of the cover uh, is what we call Financial Times Pink. Um, I worked, well both me and Natasha the other editor and founder worked with um, graphic designer, art director CJ Newton. Yeah. Um, and we were going through colour palettes and we're looking at sort of other reference points. And I do a lot of research in my spare time. And I had like loads of Financial Times. I don't know why. I just thought like maybe I could like look up the FTSE 100 and <laughs> see how the art world is doing. Yeah. And CJ just went, How funny would it be if we had? one of the colour themes being literally the colour of the Financial Times. So it's kind of how we started. It's funny because I never really even thought about Financial Times Pink as a colour. Yeah. Then when I saw the magazine, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's quite subtle. I think that's why I wanted to mention it because you might not think of it as when you see it. Mm. Um, but yeah, so the background colour is a light pink. Um, and then at the top it says, investigating the art market gatekeeper full stop it's quite nice on the cover as well how you've obviously got like one of uh honor freeman's like illustrations because like, i think they kind of like they're very much like a visual kind of feast really yeah. and like they're like they're really nicely done and they've got nice colors and stuff and i like how you've got the white the kind of white cube, cube. and against the financial times pink it kind of like makes it stand out yeah um so what Charlie's referring to is in the middle we have a line drawing of an archway um, it then has a person at the bottom holding up a sacrifice like sheep's head yeah um, Could, I think it's either it a, a sheep or a cow yeah I think it might be a cow sorry honour I'll have to confirm that for yeah us. we'll have to get that confirmed um, <laughs> and then around is like candles and the sort of the offering if you like the sheep mm -hmm. I keep saying sheep, cow head offering mm -hmm. is towards a literal white cube. Now, we're not referring to the other white cube, which <laughs> you might know of in the art world. It's literally a, yeah. a cube, a white yeah, cube. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a subtle little hint. It is a something. subtle hint. Um, and that's what's so great about Honor's illustrations. And there's 10 of them within the magazine, which we'll discuss a little further. Mm -hmm. um, and then simply at the bottom is written issue 01. Um, autumn 2020 bit of a delay there but um and transaction so I suppose that's with, what, without sorry to, i was gonna no. say that's that's what happens when um you're making a magazine in a pandemic i guess yeah it's gonna get delayed and especially with our first issue i definitely went into it very naive with timelines so i think you can get away with november kind of still being autumn yeah <laughs> you can flag it we can flag it right Let's proceed into the magazine. Very nice. So, on the first sort of page, 
we've obviously got gatekeeper issue one autumn 20 so it's kind of and then it, we've got the instagram and the email and the website sort of linked at the bottom of the page so that's just kind of like um don't know what do you call that like a little like information information page, page. there we go yeah, uh, um, if anyone's interested it's www.gatekeepermagazine.com nice little plug there <laughs> instagram is at gatekeeperzine and if you want to email um you can email us at contact at gatekeepermagazine.com okay so we've got a very nice on the so on the left is the again financial times pink um sort of information contact page and then on the right hand side we've got a a very nice green page um advertising um hepsi bar leon work so we've got um, a nice little advert there with um, the link to Hepty Bar's website as well as her Instagram page. Um, um, yeah, which is www.hepsibarleon.com and Leon, which is her Instagram. Her work's super interesting. She makes sustainable bags. And when we were looking for um, advert submissions, she came, came forward. I was excited to have her in there. Mm -hmm. It's nice to support like graduate creatives Definitely. as well as... You know. Nice bit of colour to it as well. Lovely colour, lovely page. So the next page is, um, and if any of you follow our Instagram, you probably have seen Big Rat Studios feature quite a lot on there. Um, so it's a really nice cream colour, the background, with a pink image overlay, which is, I'm guessing, I'm not 100% sure in saying this, but I think it could be a skyline screenshot from The Sims. I think you might be right. Yeah, I know they do a lot of uh, design work uh, of, on The Sims, yeah. so that's what I'm thinking. And then over the top of that image is Big Rat Studio in lovely, big, funky writing. Mm -hmm. uh, underneath that, they do their tagline, I guess, showing young and early career artists' work online. Um, and it says online interactive art exhibition, spreading art in a lockdown, www.bigrats.studio. Wow, I'm really getting my tongue tied already. <laughs> I think it's probably a good time to mention as well the launch event, which obviously mm. um, Gatekeeper collaborated with um, Big Rat Studio to do a launch event, um, which is obviously their sort of speciality um, exhibitions and um, yeah, virtual and virtual sort of spaces and um, events. Yeah, so it was nice to work with them. Yeah, they did a really good job of the show and. I think it's like they're doing doing it in a slightly sort of different and, in my opinion, more interesting way than the sort of typical like virtual exhibitions. Yeah, 100%. Um, and it's very much like artwork centred. Um, you know, I think like creating a space that kind of complements the artwork. And the artist, I yeah, think, as well. Exactly. They, they work very close to the artist and mm -hmm. get a feel of them as a creator as well as the artwork. And it's like mm -hmm. really nice that that becomes almost uh, a piece in itself because it's, mm -hmm. it's just accommodating like yeah because I think a lot of the time now especially with virtual reality and stuff sometimes like the tech technology like becomes the work mm -hmm. and I think that's what Big Rat sort of um, do very well is that they the sort of artwork's always at the centre of um, what they do so yeah um, it's very much a facilitate facilitatory platform yeah um, I feel like we've got a lot of collaborators here with our adverts I guess it's quite nice yeah um, another yeah. business kind of venture yeah. um, is Art Market um, and the website is art-market.com so um, I don't know if you guys follow Freeze Magazine so it's 
F R E Z E, like freeze, like freezer, underscore magazine. That is their at. Um, so if any of you guys follow that, that meme account, the people who run freeze underscore magazine has also launched Art Market, which is kind of a jokes. I think they just do hats now, don't they? And they do. They've got a t shirt there, I think. I don't know if that's for sale, but oh, I know okay. for certain the hats are. Okay. Sorry, just to add that in there. They've done a little variety of like merchandise, which was quite like making fun of the art world, which was quite funny. So the hat. Yeah. It says, if I read it properly, uh, right, it says Gesamtkunstwerk, which I imagine is a German word. Yeah, it's, it's like a meme. Okay, so it means total work of art. Love that. So there's a hat here, a black hat, um, with a young man wearing it, saying, total work of art. That is exactly what we have here. And he also has a t-shirt on that says, let me relax, I'll curate later. Gesamtkunstwerk. There we go. Gesamtkunstwerk. Nice. I'm just going to say it. Every time I want to say it, I'm going to play it like that. Yeah, it's a good idea. Gesamtkunstwerk. Saves um, <laughs> was saying it wrong. It's a... It's accepted in English as a core term in aesthetics. That is from Wikipedia. And um, it's the idea of all-embracing art forms. So I guess it's kind of like a lovely, pretentious word that the English have adopted and mm. probably can't quite pronounce like us. Yeah. Okay. So we're on to the editor's letter. So obviously this is um, sort of statement from Lucy and Natasha um, about the kind of... I suppose the essence of Gatekeeper and, and why they've started it, really. We'll start with the visuals first. Yeah, so we've got on the left-hand left hand side, we've got um, the edit... It, it's like a sort of title page saying, Editor's Letter. And we've got a nice illustration of um, what looks like a bank card um, with, at the top of it, transaction. And on the right-hand side, a logo that looks a lot like a bank that... We won't... We won't mention. mention yeah. But it looks very much like a big bank that's um based in london so. yeah um and then we've got you know we've got the the digits of a card number which were completely made up yeah can you imagine that stole anyone's detail during the editing of this magazine i had to check with our graphic designer cj <laughs> that they were actually made up <laughs> that was like sorry you can't do anything without a security code anyway so it's fine well yeah, that's true. that's true. Maybe it's like hidden in the magazine somewhere. Yeah, and you don't want to just have zero, zero, zero because that's boring. That is boring. But I can confirm that the numbers on the card are made up in case anyone gets excited. So, yeah, so again, we've got the um, the Financial Times pink, which is obviously like a bit of a theme throughout the magazine. Mm. Um, so, yeah, on the left-hand side, we've got Editor's Letter um, with the bank card um, that looks a lot like a bank we were mentioned. Um, and on the right-hand side, we've got a bit of a sort of, well, the editor's letter, the introduction to the magazine. Um, so w- what I wrote essentially is <laughs> what me and Natasha, I feel really bad that Natasha's not being here. Um, anyway, the commercial art market poses a variety of moral questions to many creators who delve into selling, making and exhibiting works of art. It presents itself as a playground for the rich who pawn treasured artist creations as a financial investment or to follow a trend that fellow billionaires deem current. Um, Founders Lucy Alves and Natasha Ung have always had a keen interest in the art world. However, they have had to constantly wrap their heads around a selling platform which is completely unregulated. 
As an artist, Lucy has always questioned participating and contributing to a controversial and difficult industry. Emerging artists face a problem. Needing money to live, but frequently being expected to exhibit for free in return for exposure. Comparatively, there is the extreme of making it in the art world, where work is selling for no less than thousands or millions of pounds. The initial meaning of work is increasingly lost, as it becomes a commodity or a product, reflected by its monetary value. This presents creatives with a moral dilemma. Art is more than a commodity. It is movement, it is an expression, it is power. Gatekeepers must not dictate art's value. At Gatekeeper, we hope to investigate the art market in all entities. Each issue will provide insight into how artists, creatives and writers explore this as a theme within their practice. We hope this will enable other like-minded individuals to understand the art world, utilising their knowledge to build, question and develop the future of the art economy. We want to help create alternative ecosystems rather than the elite commercial bubble that dominates the art market currently. In this first issue, we focus on the word transaction, collaborating with exciting individuals who have shared their work and perception on the art market. We would also like to say a huge thank you to those who have agreed to collaborate with us and contribute to our first issue. As an up-and-coming magazine, the support has been so important to us and helps to rebuild the future help to rebuild we haven't even broken down yet <laughs> helps to build the future of gatekeeper bit of foreshadowing there was the loose please can we not <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and at the bottom it just says another a special thanks from editors and founders lucy Alves and natasha Ung. creative direction and graphic design cj newton and Lisa colson and contributors charles maddox aline benjaminson cj newton max haven robin tarbert uh, honor freeman and matthew burrows mbe for those who we actually had a discussion because we believe that Matthew Burroughs has recently been made Mm -hmm. a member of the British Empire um but we were not aware of that when the magazine was printed so we'd just like to say Matthew Burroughs if you were listening we're sorry yeah I mean and anyone that's got one at home you can just like write and you can write and be on the end yeah um so perfect glad that we got that out in the open Okay, so um, is there anything else more to mention on this page? No, I think, think we definitely covered, covered that. I mean, like you heard, we go on quite a bit about why we started Gatekeeper. Um, I think, yeah, we we don't want we want it to be something which is both serious and lighthearted. You know, um, we don't want to completely just mm-hmm. make the art world seem like this horrendous, yeah. down, depressing thing. It, it does beautiful things, but because mm-hmm. I suppose it's like it's a serious issue but you're approaching it in a light hearted way yeah which makes it easier to digest 100% that's definitely our aim and again I think um, what I've, I've actually mentioned previously on like other interviews and stuff is that we ironically we're not wanting to dictate these are amazing things you should follow we're literally just researching finding initiatives that we think are, you know... Positive. Positive, or maybe we don't have much of an opinion, but we're mm-hmm. still going to interview them and collate them into this magazine. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, up to the reader and viewer, if you like, to mm-hmm. make their own opinions. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually... We hope that we don't want it to dictate for you what you might, might you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> dictate your opinion. I think, to Gatekeeper's credit as well, I think, like, obviously being a product of a lot of like art school graduates as well yeah i think there's 
there's a like a big knowledge base behind it but also i think there's an awareness from the people involved in the magazine that it's like like you said it's not the be all and end all it's not like if what these art school graduates say is good it's good it's just that it's I suppose bringing things together that are sort of underrepresented in in the sort of art world or, or art sphere as we know it, because a lot of the sort of big institutions take all of the sort of credit yeah, and like do. suck it all up and yeah, it's like a vacuum. Yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I suppose it's like in some ways it's like a a more democratic way of sort of sharing artwork. I hope so. I think like when I did approach this topic and this is sort of what I've been interested about for so long, it's such a hard topic to approach. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be things you can learn from. So Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the journey we're on right now, which is exciting. Just Mm -hmm. hopefully we're getting, we're going down the right path. (laughs) Um, So yeah, moving on to the contents page. Okay. Do you want me to tackle this one? Yeah, go on. Okay. So the first, well, the sort of first, I suppose, feature, yeah, um, is from page ten to thirteen. Um, so it's in conversation with Jay Jopling and Charles Maddox, um, which is obviously myself. So I mean, that's on the. I think it's the next page after yeah, this. Yeah, so we can go, go into, into that, that bit, then. Yeah. Bit more detail. Um, page fourteen to twenty-three: New circulations um, with Matthew Burroughs, MBE. Um, page 24 to 27 artist feature on CJ Newton who is also the very good art director and um, graphic designer who also obviously did all that work on the magazine Um, another artist feature on 28 to 39 um, by Honor Freeman Um, page 40 to 45 uh, new circulations feature again um, artist swap editions Page 46 to 51, uh, a Q&A with Max Haven. And finally, an artist feature on page 56 to 61 with Aline Benjaminson. So yeah, we've got a very nicely designed contents page here, which is the primary colour is black, uh, sorry, red. I don't know why I said black. Um, <laughs> is red with white text on, so it kind of like stands sure. out. Yeah, the, the red is a nice pop. There's a lot of like... Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different colours, which is nice. We've really tried to explore quite a lot of colour, because there is actually a lot of writing in this. Mm -hmm. Um, So we we did work quite hard with the graphic design team. Mm -hmm. I think that sounds so so professional. (laughs) It's quite funny, because we're kind of criticising capitalism, yet we're selling a magazine. Um, As a creative point of view, it's nice to have something physical as well. Mm -hmm. So having something that's also, you know nice to have it was very important to us when um lucy and i refer to graphic design team um we're going to do that from now on because it makes it makes it sound good let's do that so that's eliza colson and cj newton so we're just gonna instead of saying both the names at once we're just gonna call them the graphic graphic design design team team. so yeah it's got a nice ring to it little asterisks there yeah um talking of asterisks oh here we go on the next page we do have the interview with jay jopling and charles maddox so this kind of came um, from sort of my explorations into um, the sort of persona of artist um, and the sort of problems, I suppose, with the expectation sometimes that artists are kind of allowed to be um, 
problematic and um, arrogant and um, sort of just quite self-obsessed really. So kind of took me down the route of um, a project where I sort of played a character, I guess. I um, think persona is an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. I think I've actually explored quite a lot in the past the idea of these big artists who make it in the art world, you know, they're selling mm-hmm. work for millions, they've got a huge studio and team behind them. Mm-hmm. They're almost, I'm not going to mention any names, but um, they're almost like a, a caricature of themselves, yeah. they're a persona. But I think what's interesting as well is I think there's a lot of artists that are almost forced into forced into that or they think that, you know, no one's going to care about their artwork if they're not like an interesting character themselves. Or do you think that they're putting on that persona to sell in line with their work? I think it's a, it's a mixture, but I think there's definitely, there's definitely um, an element of that there. And it's funny because I actually did a lot of research on like certain artists that I was kind of expecting to have a certain persona and actually like um, through you know through looking at interviews and stuff with them I actually did think that there was quite a lot of them um, that we we almost like come up with our, our our own image of an artist let's let's say for example Damien Hurst so we come up because obviously a lot of been written a lot's been written about him not making his own work physically etc etc and actually when I, before I approached the subject and looked at his interviews I was kind of expecting a different persona than than what I found, which I thought was quite interesting, um, because I think yeah he does speak quite honestly and frankly about his work, but I don't think he's an example of one of the kind of artists that I was looking at. But there was a couple of other that I did find, and I kind of thought the performance that they were putting on was quite hilarious, really. So yeah, then... but it is actually interesting. Like that's the, another thing is another way of looking at it is okay. Yeah, it's great to look at these artists who are so super exploitative of the art market Mm -hmm. and look at them being like disgusting but also it's quite interesting at the same time Mm -hmm. what they've done in a way is very clever can it be commendable yeah that moral question that i ask all the time Mm -hmm. but anyway less about those big artists who are spoken about way too much we don't want to give them any more time we want to speak about charles maddox okay so um yeah so basically this what this sort of page um has got like a an interview it's actually an interview that i did with myself basically i'm gonna gonna admit that right now um but it's it's almost an interview with myself um asking myself the questions that i wanted to be asked really but um sort of framing them from um the perspective of someone that owns one of these big institutions that gatekeepers kind of um tackling I guess um so I've picked um a sort of relatively big sort of owner of a big institution that is depicted on the front page of the um well the names magazine. Of the magazine you see there as well so. so yeah so so the white cube um which has had quite a lot of sort of interesting articles written about in the past in you know being involved with money laundering and um, various other forms of sort of corrupt financial dealings. Um, so, yeah, I picked Jay Jopling, who's the, the sort of uh, founder and owner of, of the White Cube, um, to sort of carry out this interview with me. So Yeah, he's the interviewer. So he is the interviewer and I am obviously the interviewee. Um, and this is um, this is from the perspective of myself uh, as 
as the person that's made the work um but within the work it's it's quite a hard thing to describe in the, at the best of times but um obviously i'm exploring the the sort of artist persona uh, in the work so the character in the work is called marley gape um and the work is made by him so it's almost like inception I've, yeah it's, like, it's almost like i've been the architect of an artist that is a bit of a yeah a bit of a problematic character um and has made this artwork can i try and explain it really simply okay try <laughs> it's a fake jay joplin mm-hmm. interviewing charles maddox on a fake persona but artist mm-hmm. marley gape okay yeah do you think that made sense yeah it does um, so yeah, in a visual sense, at the top we've got Jay Jopling and Charles Maddox, and there's an asterisk after Jay Jopling. Underneath it says, he would probably never, which is in the colour red. Yes. Um, and I really hope that people understand that Jay Jopling hasn't actually interviewed <laughs> Charles Maddox. Because he would never, of course. He would probably <laughs> never. Um, and then on the left, we have some interview questions, which we'll read through in a second mm-hmm. and then on the right page we have the work a blood-stained triangle um which is actually being discussed um by marley gape 2020 mm-hmm. okay so yeah so my first question is what three words would you use to describe what this project is about facade truth and conformity and what do you think is your core comment um, the facade that exists in every aspect of our world, we all act whether we are aware of it or not. From Marley Gapes, the newsreader, or me and you and the way we all perform our individual social roles, organisations act too, which is what Liberal Hill critiques. Liberal Hill is the sort of made up um, news um, show in the film, um, which Liberal Hill critiques as it acts as a satirical version of a new nerve of a nervous, politically correct news show in the post-truth era. What do you think are the main references in this work and why? Gregor Schneider and his concept of the Twin Houses was key to the idea of making Sister Worlds, as well as books and films like Flatland by Edwin Abbott and The Butterfly Effect, which helped me further understand Sister Worlds. When make, making God, Marley Gape's artworks, I was looking at a lot of Anthony Gormley's sculptures and exploring how he uses his own body to make his work. Jacques Lacan's writing on camouflage, paintings like... Um, Malevich's White and White, which is um, <laughs> it's somewhat more of a controversial um, artwork now in, re- in recent developments. But when I was looking at it, I wasn't aware of the sort of connotations. But and it was a reference that I did look at. So um, and Agnes Martin's White Stone also became influential because that was kind of about the um, the sort of the, these artists that are making work that almost doesn't appear like anything it's kind of like this white um this kind of blank canvas almost and like yeah. how it kind of it's got a tendency to anger or annoy people when yeah. when it's not got so much sort of different elements to it yeah it's like that classic you know what i know a lot of people who go into art galleries and get frustrated by some of the contemporary art mm-hmm. which is exactly yeah very simple Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they helped me inspire the white figures on the white background and how to explain this conceptually, reflecting Marley Gape's character and personality. The main influences for the new show came from the work of Amanda Inucci and Chris Morris with Brass Eye in the day-to-day in particular, as I tried to use some of the same visual language. Um, who is Marley Gape and what sort of character is he based on? 
Marley Gaypax is a very extreme version of my narcissistic artist alter ego. He is what I would become in 10 years if I let all self-awareness and humility go out the window. He is what the art world loves to celebrate, arrogant, narcissistic people with ridiculously high levels of self-importance. Like me, he comes from the north of England but has a massive chip on his shoulder about it and is paying his way through the art world to achieve some level of status in the highbrow circles he wants to operate in. We're going on to the next page now. Um, and on the left, the interview continues. So, please could you expand on why these events happen in two parallel worlds? The idea of parallel worlds came from my fascination with how one minor difference can affect the whole world so much. It was some something that I was playing with before university and wanted to do something that encompassed this theme as my final major project to see how far I've come over the last three years. The worlds are separated by one difference, the photographic frame, hence the title, A Frame Apart. I wanted to show how something seemingly unimportant changes the whole world. The parallel worlds also allow us to see the true fickle nature of the art, of the world. It's the same artist with practically the same artwork, yet in one world he's a hero and one world he's a villain, despite doing nothing different in each. Who do you think this work is for? This work is for everyone. Part of the work is about the elitism of the art world and the ethical considerations of that. So it's definitely made to make sense to everyone, even people with little to no education in art or in general. It's all about conceptual accessibility. Um, the whole film serves the artwork to some degree, to put it into context so that the relevance of the artwork can be understood. It's very important to me that art is made accessible so that it doesn't just serve the elite like most art does, because I think art is so much more powerful when it's clear. I think art like this helps us work towards being a less polarised, more understanding society. Um, what are your reasons for not writing an artist statement for the work? Artist statements are usually written using complex language, which just doesn't explain the work clearly and is written to impress, educate people. If someone doesn't get it and asks for further explanation, then they have failed the artwork as they haven't been intelligent enough to get it. It's the whole concept of the Emperor's New Clothes and it's a cycle which I believe needs to be broken. My project is commenting on that. The work should make sense without an artist statement because that's what I believe good art is. If I wrote an artist statement for this work using, as David Levy and Alex Rule coined it, international art English, I would be becoming part of the problem. I would have literally become Marley Gate. Can you tell me the reason for making this work? Its purpose is to challenge conventions that we take for granted, whether that's something simple like the photographic frame or, or the post-truth world. To what extent do we, do we believe what we hear on the news? It's difficult to shake our adult habits, but if we could start again and reinvent or relearn parts of our world, what would we change? The work is about taking a step out of our world and looking back in, almost an anthropological stance on our own culture, with the work becoming a template to look at the current times. I am operating as an infiltrator and critiquing the medium of lens-based media with itself. The same pattern repeats, whether that be the artist critiquing the artist, the news critiquing the news, or the frame critiquing the frame. The concept is to critique the thing with the thing. The work becomes about deception, self-obsession and self-cannibalisation, destroying itself under the pretense of something else. Love it. Um, I mean, I must say, a lot of... It, it's difficult because I have this kind of thing of, of wanting to explain sometimes complicated um, concepts or theories, but, but want, wanting to make it make as much sense as possible. Um, but Johnny Briggs, actually, my tutor in, in third year, is like, he's very good at, like, um, helping me do that and sort yeah. of coming up with phrases and ways to say things that kind of simplified it down a little bit so it's also worth mentioning um, that I don't know why I didn't think to do this to provide a link for the um, film but you can find both of the films 
on just on YouTube. So if you type in a frame apart, um, Charles Maddox, they will both appear. So there's the two films, um, one in the triangular frame and one in the rectangular frame. Um, and to the right of the page, we have mock layouts for the show. We've got two rooms. Oh, actually, we've got four rooms, but um, two sets of two lined up next to each other. Um, and in each room, there is um, ten life-size figures of Marley Gate, which are quite scary, I must say. So they are like 3D renders of my sort of body, but obviously I'm the character, so 3D renders of, of me, basically. Um, all sort of lined up looking towards um, a screen in, in both rooms. Um, on the screen, in on one side, is the rectangular... Um, in the rectangular frame, and on the right-hand side, it is in the triangular frame. Uh, and then the artwork in each room, um, the one on the right-hand side, we have the rectangular artwork for the triangular world, and in the rectangular world, we have the triangular artwork. Sorry, I know it's a lot, it's it's confusing. It... Well, I will say, you know, we'll add that link somewhere, and if you want to yeah. learn a bit more about but, Charles's yeah. work. Um, so, you know, it's funny, going through your answers here mm -hmm. which is interesting there's actually elements that I disagree with mm -hmm. when you're talking about okay. the art world which is I think even more interesting because mm -hmm. it's the idea when you dialogue, can read this you can read this and unpick it yourself you know you might not necessarily mm -hmm. agree with it all but it's the idea that it's an alternative opinion to the current mm -hmm. sort of mm, commercial yeah we can have a chat about that afterwards. I'm sure we might be here for a while if we get yeah, into it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely not. Um, okay, so on the next page, we've got um, In Conversation um, with Matthew Burroughs. So we've got a very nice illustration on the left-hand page. Um, again, the sort of background is Financial Times pink. And we've got a sort of message, a blue message sort of, eye, eye message really, sort of looking yeah. bubble that says founder of artist support pledge and then the one underneath in conversation with Matthew Burroughs and these two message bubbles are kind of popping out of the phone yeah it's like an abstract phone with um, an arrow and a heart which is kind of I guess a reference to Instagram which yeah. is where artist support pledge is based and then on the right of the page it says towards a generous culture with um, a blue and red arrow linking it we all sort of follow on from that. So, um, yeah, let's go straight into Matthew Burroughs because I think a lot of it's actually mentioned in the interview, mm -hmm. so we don't need to go into it too much. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself as an artist and creative. So I'm a professional artist, although I've recently strayed into sculpture. Most of my practice to date has been around drawing and painting. I think of what I do as an exploration of the body in relation to landscape, human nature and the natural environment in relationship to one another. I think that modern culture tends to think of human nature as somehow separate to the natural world. I believe that this, it is this separation that has caused a lot of problems, such as environmental issues and inequalities. As soon as we see ourselves as separate, it is easy to make divisions and abuse resources and landscapes. Framing landscape as a view is a means of control which emerged as a product of the industri Industrial Revolution in the 1700s. My work does not frame the environment literally or metaphorically. I feel as though I take a very traditional pre-history, pre-industrial civilization hunter-gatherer approach. For example, Aboriginals became intimately connected to the landscape by moving at a pace that allowed them to name everything they saw. 
One of my great loves is endurance running, through which I have developed an intimate relation with the landscape. Consequently, my work has moved away from framing the landscape as an image and more towards exploring landscapes through the connectiveness of movement. All of your senses and sense of who you are is embodied through your relationship to the environment. It is important to find a visual equivalent that explores being and dwelling, moving through places. How did you get into the art world? I suppose I took a very straightforward route. I did my art foundation at Chester College, BA at Birmingham School of Art and MA at Royal College of Art. Whilst I was doing my MA, I'd already been taken on by a London and New York art gallery, which meant that I went straight from my BA to becoming a professional artist. Although to many young artists that might sound like a dream, I don't think I would recommend it. I think ideally you should have time to connect to a community of artists, develop your network, friendships and your work. In fact, I don't think most artists I know really started to develop until their 40s. It doesn't mean the work you do before that isn't interesting, but it takes, a, it takes that time to really discover what you're about. At Gatekeeper, we are very interested in how commercial artwork can impact artists' practice. Do you feel that the commercial art market has had an impact on your work? At the beginning of my career, at the moment when I was successful very quickly, I hadn't developed my identity as an artist. I was still exploring the process of painting and found the pressure of needing to produce work consistently and on demand for exhibitions, which was very unconstructive for my practice. Indeed, I had a long period in which I struggled to find a positive commercial relationship as I felt constrained by commercial pressures. For emerging artists, how do you, they strike the balance with success in the sense that you describe and the need to earn money? Artists should be successful through their creativity thriving and a strong, agile, in-depth relationship to the wider community. This is difficult as it needs funding. Start as you mean to go on. If you compromise at the beginning, then you'll always be compromised. You need to be clear from day one what your values are, where you are willing to compromise and where you are not. The, biz the business side of art should support the creative side, not the other way around. I only work with galleries that allow me to develop my work and wouldn't compromise my creativity. Be professional. I don't mean professionalise your work, but don't be sloppy in your relationships with galleries or collectors. Don't be afraid to ask for support. Absolutely be yourself. Don't be embarrassed. Don't try and be like someone else who's been successful. You won't inherit their success. Well, was that a bit of a dig at Marley Gate? <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about the Artist Support Project and what influenced you to start it. When I was in my late 30s, I realised that myself and many of my contemporaries were in this weird situation. We had finished studying, made a good go at being professional artists, but the in-depth dialogues and discourses that we'd been a part of on our MA courses had dissipated to some extent. I felt that I was not having a sufficiently robust discourse around my work. I started to think about how I could deal with that. I realised the solution would be to utilise the network I have, so I created a system that enabled my friends and peers to support one another, the Artist Support Project. Um, on the right of the page, just to break the interview, is... Um, a highlight, a select highlight, which is by from an artist at Emily Stollery, selected by Sid Motion director and founder of Sid Motion Gallery London, um, and this is a piece of work by Emily Stollery, um, which was featured in Artist Support Pledge. Which, if we continue with the interview, will explain a little bit more about that. But at the moment, we're discussing Matthew Burry's other project, Artist Support Project. Cool. Sorry, I just had to get some water then. I'll carry on. Um, so the project works around the idea of creating small groups of four to six people that support each other creatively and intellectually through either practical, academic or emotional support. 
Over two days, I take each group through the processes I've developed that enable an in-depth discourse into your strengths, weaknesses, passions and values. One of the things I've noticed over the years is that when an artist grinds to a halt creatively, it's almost always because one of those things has not been nurtured and instead has grown stale. If you don't nurture your interest, then what do you make work about? What is core to whatever you make? What are those things? When you ask people these things, they look a bit confused and they realise they don't really know. So we try and work to develop a strong sense of this. Often your weaknesses give you the most creative play. You're inventive when you're stuck, not when you know what you're doing. You must understand how to use your strengths to support and play with your weaknesses. It feels as though your new initiative, Artist Support Pledge, has taken the concept of Artist Support Project to a much larger scale. Would you say this is the case? Yes, Artist Support Pledge was based on the same culture as the Artist Support Project, a culture that I'm always propagating through the network. Both are based on the idea that if you have a culture of trust and generosity, it's a much more profitable environment to discuss, share and support one another. This contrasts with the environment of competitiveness, one-upmanship, exclusivity, power and wealth that tends to dominate the art market we currently know. If you're in hyper-competition, then honest debate goes out the window. On March the 16th, I had to cancel two forthcoming workshops as well as a solo show due to COVID-19. It seemed that every message I received was regarding exhibitions closing, galleries closing, work ending. I felt a wave of desperation acknowledging that this was going to be a really, really bad for artists. I wanted to support friends and colleagues that are part of Artist Support Project. I thought, I've got this culture of trust and generosity and this network. I can use the people in that to support one another. It had to be an economy, a means to financially support each other. It was just a matter of coming up with an economic formula that worked. A low price entry and an act of generosity through paying back into the system. From there, I wrote a list of what I thought a generous culture should be. Whenever someone asked me a question, I would look at the list and think, right, what's the generous answer? Lots of people asking, can I submit work to the Artist Support Pledge? My answer was always yes. And that's how it started. I had modest expectations when I launched it, but within 24 hours it was clear it was going to be something huge. You now have some quite well-known artists participating in the Artist Support Pledge. How do you intend to regulate the system and keep it inclusive of everybody? That's been a challenge from day one. I can't police it and it's not supposed to be policed. The pledge is based on cultural values and a code of conduct. It's a very simple formula and if everyone buys in, then it's very effective. I took principles from hunter-gatherer societies, including the idea that all assets are shared across the community and I wanted to create an economy that replicated this. We rely on trust and generosity of community to self-police and most people do honour the code of conduct. They are excited by it. Excited not only about earning money, but supporting friends and colleagues. The Artist Support Pledge is great as it allows artists to be successful on reflection of their own art. A key failing of the current art market is that an artist's success is dependent on a gatekeeper somewhere. Nice little plug there. I don't even know if that was intentional. Um, deciding if you are hot or not. Artist Support Pledge accepts everyone, promoting equal access and equal opportunity. So how can emerging artists be successful within the Artist Support Pledge? It's not like the art market is a different economic model and culture. You cannot just post your work, you are dealing with a dynamic economy and the algorithms are always shifting. You have to follow the how-to guides and top tips on the website. Read the guidelines. When you follow, follow them, it works. Do you feel that there are any limitations of the Artist Support Pledge? Well, yes, there are two, human behaviour and technology. I feel that these are very much interlinked. The human behaviour part concerns maintaining the cultural values and the community that buys into the pledge. These are what have made the pledge so successful. A generous culture is not only economically effective, but having a culture, a community and an economic model that works makes 
the pledge accessible. Second is the limits of technology. Instagram had developed algorithms that favour sociability, which is why it was so important to follow the pledge guidelines. The more you dynamically engage on Instagram, i.e. like, comment, post consistently at the same time, the more exposure your content will get. The algorithms will pick up on the activity and they will drive the content. Um, um, just as a visual comment now, um, onto the right side of the page, at the top are two pictures of sculptures. Hard to explain, they're quite abstract. They're Balanced metal? Yeah, ceramics. They're stacked sort oh, of they different, yeah, different... This is like, this is like a, a challenge in describing artwork now. Oh, God, it's so hard. <laughs> um, yeah, they're a kind of a metal colour, very, but they're actually ceramic-based, oh, right. and they're stu- stacked, interestingly, um, as like a kind of a, a tube-like sculpture. Kind of like Leaning, Leaning Tower of Pisa vibes. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not sure if Adam Ross, the artist, would... would uh... I don't know, like that comparison, but yeah, they're, they're called Unbalanced 2020 by Adam um, Ross. Ceramics. Yeah, Adam Ross Ceramics. Um, moving on to the interview. So, has this new economic model within the Art of Support Pledge changed your outlooks on the commercial art market model? And do you think that the commercial art market may change as a reflection of the success of the Art of Support Pledge? I don't know, really. Nobody knows as no one knows where the commercial art market is going at the moment. I think Artist Support Pledge will be around for a while yet, but it's a new model and there is no other platform really like it to compare. A really great challenge that the pledge has posed to the art market is that it has shown that there is an alternative way um, for artists to make a living whilst maintaining their practice. It's showing them a different economic model. A number of galleries that are a really important part of the art market have come up with versions of the Artist Support Pledge to support their resident artists. I think the mainstream market has survived and been backed up by artists as there has been no other economic model, no other way of doing it. So you either buy into the system of power and elitism or you don't have a career. And I don't know any artists that like that system. What the Artist Support Pledge may have done is highlighted that it's not um, that we don't need the mainstream art market, but that the art doesn't need to be so exclusive. It has shown that there doesn't need to be so many gatekeepers. I'm not sure that the current art market is a model that we can all accept anymore. An observation I've made is that more established artists have been joining, which is brilliant. They bring money and they attract buyers who then buy other work. One thing that is very notable when uh, speaking with buyers is that they are not buying one or two pieces, but instead buying 10 or 20. It's a completely different model to the current art market and it's very successful so far. Um, I think this also opens up the art market on the other side um, to younger buyers or collectors. As often, the art market is very elitist in the sense that that to start a collection or buying art, you already have to be very well off. Absolutely. One of the things that has taken me by surprise was that within the first few days, I not only got messages from artists across the world saying thank you, but from buyers. They would say, this is the best thing ever. We've got a little image break right now, so a little breath for poor old Charlie. Um, It's an image of a uh, ceiling and hanging is a... A very interesting spider's web design. It almost looks very mechanical, like a mm-hmm. um, like, like a cog or something like that. Yeah, it's good. Um, and yeah, it's like hanging from the ceiling. It's really interesting silver sculpture, and mm-hmm. it's by India Nielsen, and it's called Chrome Web 2018. And uh, she participated in the Art of Support Pledge. Okay, so I will carry on from the last question. So yes, this is the best thing ever. I've never had the confidence to go into galleries and buy art. This is a great way to collect as I can take risk and don't need to be embarrassed. 
These collectors then move on to buying more substantial pieces directly from the artist. We were tracking artists from day one to see if there was a pattern of behaviour and one thing we saw across the board was that those who were successful on the pledge started to sell as much work off the pledge as on it. What is the future of the artist support pledge and how you'd adapt it in a post-corona society? Oh, that was such... Post-corona society. That was such a naive question. (laughs) Um, At the moment, my aim for the pledge is to keep it going, manage its culture, develop its partnerships, its collaborations and funding. It's free to do, but it's not free to run. I've been working full-time since March and all my time has been given for free. I've personally funded the platform, legal and licensing costs, etc., We are trying to get public funding at the moment, but we would like to try and make it self-funded. We now have a giving page on the website and you can either give a monthly donation or a one-off payment. All of that really helps as it means we can pay the running costs. Hopefully it will also allow me to employ people to manage and run it on a day-to-day basis. This would truly make it sustainable and permanent. Finally, is there anything exciting for the future you can share with us? The next thing that I'm really excited about is a way to support students. There are two things. Firstly, a student in view where students can post images of their life in view in their studios. And we will then repost this on the account to highlight different students every couple of weeks. This will be a way to draw into the spotlight what students are doing. Each student selected will choose seven other students whose work they really rate to highlight. Secondly, we haven't figured out a way to do this, but we want to try and find a way to fund students, a way to draw pledges to help fund students with their uh, studies primarily i want to use the account as a cultural spokesperson reposting community activity and artist studios in view that promote a generous culture i want to get the voice of communities onto the account show how it's done lead by example when we all live by a generous culture it makes a much happier art world do you know what i really think that um well done charlie um i really think that interview is super interesting especially if you've seen our support pledge on Instagram, maybe even you used it yourself, but knowing more about Matthew Barris who set it up and also about it, the idea of it being such a generous culture, mm-hmm. I think I went into, when I look into sort of um, alternative ecosystems to the current like commercial art market, mm-hmm. I go in quite pessimistic. Do you know what I mean? I'm always a bit like, well... How's this going to work? How, not how's it going to work, but how's it really different? Um, yeah, yeah. Is it, but I really think that uh, this interview gives a nice insight mm, and definitely. Ho- hopefully makes you sort of level out the level it out a bit, mm. level out the playing field. That definitely. is definitely the wrong saying I just said. And it it seems like as well like Matthew's obviously doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, which is obviously another massive like important element to it. Yeah, definitely. Matthew Barr is MBE. So um, just to talk about some visuals, we have. I really like this, by the way. On the left, we've got Financial Times pink background. Who's going to read the name? Yeah, you can. There's an, also a picture of loads and loads and loads of bananas. And it, the artwork is called Weird Eel Banana Things Hanging Off Wall. Ongoing series, Artificial Geology 2020. Nika Nilova. But yeah, I love the title of that because it's like... Really good. It's just like this, this depicting what's there. It's and they do look like weird what it says on the tin, eel yeah. banana things. Um, and... Again, I don't even know if it is bananas, but they do look like weird, weird, weird eel banana things. I think that's a great description for it. Just to say that Nika Nilova uh, was also a participant in our support pledge. Um, on the right, we have two other images. Um, so we've got bug leaf and legs collage from series between animals and trees, twenty twenty. Cecilia Bonilla. And yellow, gra- yellow Grass Looking for Light, 3, 2020, Hannah Maybank. 
lovely there and the images are some like vase with little holes in the top that you can put <laughs> put stems of uh flowers in which is depicted some like nice yellow tulips and then it's got like a nice checkboard pattern and then below that is in yellow image which kind of looks like working in the dark room and it looks like a photo. looks like it's very sun drenched almost yeah like abstracty sun drenched moving on diplomatic deserts by cj newton so diplomatic deserts on the left um we've got a nice white background um and this is work by cj newton you might have heard that name before we're like one big gatekeeper happy family we do dabble in everything so cj um has put together some writing about his project which is called diplomatic deserts so he he said a search for desert on the internet will show a never-ending desolate beige and red terrain all photos taken from the ground these images contain no infrastructure tall buildings or humans apart from the odd camel rider these arid surfaces make it a hostile environment for humans and animals Desert biomasses are classified by varying characteristics, including hot and dry and semi-arid, coastal and cold. Deserts from due to extreme temperatures fluctuation that strains the rocks, eventually breaking them down into grains. The wind is responsible for sculpting the wave-like forms as it carries fine sand into layers to build dunes. These landscapes are a vast nothingness, a four-dimensional canvas of both nothing and infinite possibility. In this space, anything is possible because nothing has seemingly become to be pure freedom. The power of the desert is that it allows the illusion of nothing. This strategic invisibility allows humans to see these terrains as an opportunity. Invisible Deserts, written by Danica Cooper, argues that this space allows for the pursuit of activities outside of public, judicial and civic view. In January 2018, The Guardian reported that China detained nearly 120,000 Muslim citizens in re-education schools deep in the Taklamakan Desert, Cooper 2020. Deserts that aren't populated or scarred by still remain a mystery. Our view of these terrains remains vertical from plane windows or Google Maps. When you look at a globe, not many will zoom into the beige marks on the map because there seems to be nothing. But this is precisely the issue we expect nothing, so we don't look. Artwork and war at 100 degrees brings together global trade, corruption, and its relationship with art vertically and the body. I want to open up the scope of this conversation to think about its wider consequences and social implications. The research specifically exploring invisibility, mirage, money laundering and the free trade zone, corruption and healing. Fundamentally, the project simply proposes a new space of dwelling, relaxing, learning and debating in an attempt to make us a bit more compassionate. Um, on the right hand side we have a very nice illustration um, on the red that was featured earlier in the magazine. Um, it's kind of very deep red um, and the so well just the sphere really. Um, and in the at the top of the um, globe it says for, uh, vertical mastery at the bottom it says corruption and in between we have a desert in the middle um and it's it's kind of a diagram to explain this concept really um and we've got lots of 
um, pound signs in various different shapes. Yeah, it's kind of, you're right, it's like a a sort of, just like a really nice symbol mm-hmm. of, you know. And a lot of things intersect corruption. and kind of. Yeah, like we've got here, if we read out some of the writing in within the diagram, we've got care, labour, big business, influences, I wholeheartedly believe you, you falling into the vertical axes. And then we've got inequality, media, free trade zone, art falling into money laundering. There's a lot of buzzwords in there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and like a lot of different like moving elements. It's a really nice... Very satisfying illustration. I like to say a nice depiction of... I'll beat this out. The f- beep for the art world. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. On the next page, we've got... Um, We've got Bathroom Tyler on Board 2020, and that is an artwork um, that CJ produced. Um, I actually was there when he was making this artwork, and I've, oh, a it, bit of inside information. Yeah, and there. I've got I've got to say it looked like hard work because he had these bathroom tiles um, that are then stuck to I think it's like a piece of sort of plywood. Um, so he sort of fastened them on and then used. Um, sort of printed graphics and um, somehow sort of, sort of thing, yeah. printed them onto the tiles. Oh wow! Um, so yeah, I mean, it's I so yeah, it's bathroom tile with graphics over the top, and some of the bathroom tiles are um, stuck on the other way around, so you sort of see the back of them. And I think this is kind of like part of like breaking down the illusion of um, various unseen um things within artist labor process all of those sort of topics yeah exactly um on the right hand side uh we've got artwork and war at 100 degrees and that's a still from the moving image piece that cj created and the actual moving image piece is on gatekeeper oh okay at gatekeepermagazine.com might be a good we could probably put the um the films, the Your film on yeah, because oh. that'd be a good way to sort of have it in we'll one do place. That. Yeah, so be sure to check that out because it's a really nice video and just love it really. Just love the little abstract note. Okay, we're now on to our feature artist honor Freeman. Um, she is the illustrator who is on the cover and back of the magazine. In honors illustrative handwriting, it says Honor Grace, which is kind of like a pseudonym. She's got like her own font on her. Yeah, really she like. does. Really nice. Um, and just below, it gives it a little bit of context. Um, this is not a cult by Honor Grace Freeman. It advises you to wear your pants more than once. Um, a stranger will buy them for a lot of money on Craigslist. <laughs> um, and not to worship the sale rail. Freeman has now offered up her insight on the art market, providing Gatekeeper 10 commandments to help emerging artists like herself navigate the art market in an array of unique and comical ways. Um, this is going to be fun to describe. Definitely. Um, and also, just to give that a bit of context, um, Honor did another 10 commandments um, of sort of avoid... Consumerism? Consumerism, that's it. Um, so that's why... You know, you've got to wear your pants more than once and sell them on Craigslist. Yeah, so I suppose, like, her work's quite, like, applicable to any subject, really. 100%. It's because it's the the language that she uses, which is kind of comical irony. Um, And to whatever subject, I think it's, like, a way, and she speaks a little bit about this, about her work, like, it approaches, again, serious sort of um, 
topics in a comical way to again make them a bit more digestible and obviously the illustrations are quite fun and interesting to look at which again sort of breaks down that well we'll go straight to it because we've got 10 to work through um the first one we're gonna evaluate i guess um is also on the back of the magazine um it is a superhero like figure wearing a orange bodysuit with a G dot on the front as a reference to Gatekeeper. Uh, they're holding up a paintbrush and a wad of cash. Um, on the l- enormous arms and enormous yeah. legs. They are like, like a superhero. Uh, oh, do you think it's a bodybuilder? I think it's a bit of a combo. I think it's okay. like a, a bodybuilder superhero well, with a six pack. Love that. Um, on the left is the writing. Rethink how you can earn in the arts. Reskill, learn about the art market, reboot your arts career. And then underneath it is This Is Not A Cult, which is kind of like the name of... Or like, yeah, I suppose, the, yeah. The, the project heading. kind yeah. of thing. But yeah, obviously it's like a massive reference to the... Uh, the go- it, it was a the government, government cam- guidance or campaign, or campaign yeah, yeah, about the arts, which I have read an article about saying that uh, apparently it was... A exterior company who produced the advert mm. just because it didn't go down very well yeah so it was like an and and they actually didn't ask for the permission to put the government on it so apparently that's what was said about it but it's a nice little joke you know we quite i quite appreciated it mm. it was yeah, nice to have um a bit of a laugh about that uh the next commandment is the command which was on which is was it is on the front of the magazine which again um you should not worship commercial galleries and that is where the person holding the sheep slash cow head and <laughs> is holding it up as a sacrifice to the white cube embark on your journey as a sugar sugar baby daddy is imperative to your success so um we've got an illustration with two hands shaking saying you've got the job. The on the right hand side of that it says job title intern description office bitch salary zero pounds per hour. On the bottom left hand um, side we've got a face sort of screaming screaming, like holding its cheeks almost, like like it's ah. sort of really suffering. And then on the right bottom right hand side we've got I've got you baby which is a hairy man's hand with a wedding ring on, touching a young bodybuilder light type girl's shoulder. Do you think shoulder. it's a bodybuilder? I think it's the, it's the same girl. It's the same girl as this one, look, because they've got the same bobble in there. Oh. oh See what do I mean? you think that's what it is? Yeah. So wh- when we say young girl, we are referring to a of age, probably young art student. Yeah. <laughs> Just um, to clear that up. So we're going on to the next commandment on the left page of the spread. Um, this one is broken down into sort of step-by-step guides. So at the bottom right-hand corner, it says, exploit social media. Instagram has more footfall than the tape. Um, and then the step-by-step guide is number one, like your photo of the tape. Um, and it's kind of like, oh, what is this one? This is Hinge, isn't it? You won't know. You're in a relationship. Um, and it says... The Tate, like your photo, and then it's got a cross or like a comment, you know, as in, are you going to send them a message? Or are you going to cross them? Number two says cross. So this person is not liking the Tate, they're crossing them off. Number three, most compatible is coming up. 
and it's Instagram. And this person, you guessed it, on number four has commented. And then number five is you invited Instagram to start the chat. And then <laughs> it says, hey babe, I see a Futura, Futura for us together. Very nice. A little graphic design pun there. You'll be glad to know that we are halfway through now. <laughs> On the right hand side, um, we have another in- illustration that says, utilize the market as a medium. You've purchased 6.66 Bitcoin, equaling £49,965. So this is kind of depicts as an artwork on the wall. Um, and it's got a young art school student Do you believe looking... that? What? Do you think that's a young art school student? Well, I'm going with your description of the last one. Really? What, what do you think they are? I just think that they are an art critic. You think they're an art critic with yeah. night trainers on? Yep. Okay. So the art critic with night trainers on <laughs> is looking at the artwork and saying, bravo, so emotive. Um, and then underneath it says receipt 2020 by Honor Grace. So obviously this is kind of um, a commentary on um, certain types of artwork. I Yeah, it's kind of, and also... And the response to certain types of artwork. Yeah, um, and also the idea that art market's becoming more and more, and especially with COVID, the art market's becoming a lot more uh, online um, and... The fact that Bitcoin, this is a scary thing, could be another way of um, trading art. So you might trade Bitcoin for an artwork. And again, it's quite scary because Bitcoin's um, it's an unregulated economy as well. So like the art market, Bitcoin is also... Which is good, know, but also has its drawbacks. But I kind of, it, it worries me 100% because um, it's definitely going to um, create even more corruption. But anyway... Nice it's nice that we've. It's nice that we are able to laugh at Honor's illustration whilst I discuss that. Um, the next commandment on the left is work for free. It's called exposure, darling, and it's got a graph um, above it. <laughs> on the vertical Excellent. axes of the graph, it starts off at a cold can of beans, getting a bolt. Buying Aesop, and I've got this one. Um, on the horizontal axes, it says like, comment, share, follow. Um, and the idea is that this person is only on a cold can of beans because they're working for free. And it's kind of going up a little bit and then down, but it's kind of always staying around cold can of beans and yeah. never even getting to getting a bolt. That's really sad. Yeah, they need sad. to refer a friend. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Make use of the sign-up offers. <laughs> Uh, on the right hand side we've got the new art order and it's a, a sort of person depicted getting grabbed by one of those sort of toy grabber things by the bottom by the mm. bottom um, with their um, with their sort of change falling out of their pocket and this is all going on inside a sort of arcade game. Yeah like you know the grabber game. Exactly yeah Claw um, game. So it says challenge the game, the art market is a rich man's playground and i love that one yeah it's a good one the rich man's obviously getting the sort of money shaken out of his pocket by the grabber thing so yeah i think that's like important and you know it's about challenging what you know about the commercial art market i just think Mm -hmm. you know why not okay so this next commandment is again another step-by-step guide um 
At the top, it says, take note, Damien Hirst traded his art for dental work. At the top, what you need in order to do this commandment, you need a dentist, you need absolutely no money, and you need a shark. So the first one is, get your dentist to remove all your teeth. The next step is to have absolutely no money. The third step is to grab a shark, get the teeth out of those shark and put it in your mouth and there you go. A nice, bright smile. Easy as that. Easy as that. Okay, so Recoin ready-made, your toilet's worth a lot of money. So on the right-hand side we've got one toilet, one screwdriver, one bucket. No, three three buckets, buckets, sorry, three buckets. Yeah, read that the wrong way. Three buckets and one wrench. And then in the bottom left-hand corner, we've got a person using a screwdriver to unfasten their toilet from from the ground. Um, On the bottom right-hand side, we've then got um, a picture of the toilet with some sort of remnants from the toilet spilling out of it with a price tag on the toilet saying three billion. And above that toilet is, you know, those little orange dots that you get when, like, a work's sold? Oh, they've I got so many clearly so many people putting yeah. orange dots on you know wow sold it more than once I don't know how that works but uh, the final commandment is avoid tax the best galleries are in free ports and again we've got a little Ikea like manual um, on the top right we've got you need you know who who knows how many works of very lucrative artwork you need uh, a lot of money and you need a freeport safe situation so step by step one buy an art piece step by step two is don't even wait around for the tax police to come ship that work straight off to a freeport number three get it in storage is a safe filled with artwork you know how i'd love Free reign of Freeport. Could you imagine seeing the works of art in there? Imagine. They should do an exhibition in the Freeports. Well, that's the whole point. People yeah. just storing them away. I know, but imagine that. Mm. Just one day, everyone got their artworks out of their storage and they'd had a massive exhibition in the Freeport. They, they don't even know how many artworks are in there. It's crazy. Freeports are so interesting. We've actually got an article about Freeports on gatekeepermagazine.com if you want to look into it because I personally you know, think it's mm-hmm. fascinating and also quite sad and scary. Mm-hmm. But let's move on. Um, so we've got a little bit of text here, um, just about Honor. So it reads, Honor Freeman is a maker primarily interested in shedding light on current environmental and socio-political issues with a satirical edge. When trying to communicate a serious subject, we have a tendency to switch off or get defensive if our views are being challenged. I think communicating these topics in a humorous way takes the pressure off, allowing people first to laugh leaves them more open to conversation. Freeman's mediums range from a more craft-based practice to a to digital drawing, with her latest project seeing her take the role of a cult leader, producing a manual of ten anti-consumerist commandments to free you from the rules of capitalism and save the planet. So you can actually, if you look on at this is not a cult ish. We don't know the exact at. Sorry. I think it's this underscore is underscore not underscore a, a underscore, underscore cult. cult. <laughs> um, if you type in, yeah, you'll be able to see the other can. Anti-consumerist commandments. Commandments. Anti- <laughs> got you can tell yeah. we're getting a bit tired. Okay, so we've got here. We've got um, artist swap editions. Um, so this is another in conversation piece. Um, we have a nice sort of 
graphic here that's got artist in black, swap in orange, and additions in black. So we've got a kind of link from artist to additions, and then a, li- a link from additions to swap, and it's all kind of this um, in the theme of exchange, um, which is obviously what artist swap additions is all about. So, and we actually were in conversation with someone, an artist um, who's the owner of swap editions, called Robin Tarbert. Um, on the right of the page is a work by Claire Undy. Um, she was in the third sort of swap edition edition, if you like, um, and she produced the work Coin Trick, um, which was an edition of 54 prints, and it's on Financial Times paper, which is so nice. We've actually got quite a few works of art um, which have been, like, the Financial Times paper's been used. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's called Coin Trick, so it's a series of hands doing coin trick kind of like a Mm. flick through of it i find the financial times quite interesting because obviously it's quite like a sort of you know financial times you think of it as an institution that's very like um financial oriented which obviously it is but they do actually do quite a lot of good like art artist features and the financial times weekend magazine yeah but why do you think that is well yeah there (laughs) is that but i think you can look at it two ways in the fact that um, they do also do um, features for um, younger, less well-known artists. So That's it's like good. it's kind of like. So should we then put them as a gatekeeper then? I suppose in yeah, they are obviously a gatekeeper, but I think there's better and worse gatekeepers. Do you know what I mean? I think there's some that are like more elitist than others. Yeah. Um, but I think obviously Financial Times, it's got it's it's a it's a difficult one because obviously they're kind of like they. They do a bit of good and a bit of bad. That can be on our next podcast. You'll hear me and Marley Gate talk about the positives and negatives of the Financial Times. Okay, so do you want to take this one or? Yeah, so this is in conversation with Swap Editions slash Robin Tarbert. Um, so it starts with saying, My London studio is an archaic jungle like storage space with a small workshop area carved out within. For a reason that I am yet to fathom, the work I produce always seems to materialise its expanding series of prints, objects, additions and components that, much like any modular system or gremlins can, multiply in quantity to fill any space, especially my own. As an artist, making stuff creates a constant storage problem. To add to the hoarding, I've always been interested in collecting and I generally look after other people's work better than my own. From contributing to print editions while at the RCA to being gifted the printer's proof when fabricating works for others as a technician. The swap has always been a financially low-cost method of collecting art, and for me, a consistent way to prevent my own works from suffocating in bubble wrap. I don't come from a background of collecting art. Like many artists who operate largely outside of the commercial gallery market, the um, the often inflated prices in exhibitions are at complete odds to the values of the work itself when it inevitably returns to my studio. Um, buying art is financially not an option, yet the act of exchanging has a value beyond consumerism. Artists are commonly low in income, but rich in produce, which creates opportunities to establish an economy of exchange as a means, not only for mutual trade, but also in act to utilise experiences of other professionals. The value that can be gained from a simple work swap introduction can potentially lead to lasting friendships and open doors to future collaborations and enriched networks. Swap editions started as a DIY curatorial experiment in 2016 
to see if I could tempt artists to contribute a small addition to a publishing initiative on the basis that for participating the only payment they will receive would be a set of all the other artwork who have contributed. Jump forward five editions and the multiple exhibitions I've worked with 80 artists and the project still successfully operates with zero funding. The artists are offered nothing to make the work. I don't earn income from the project and the overall ethos deliberately celebrates the fact that Swap Editions is a collection of artworks that money can't buy. Swap Editions is very much an extension of my studio practice as an artist. I've never wanted to be a gallery dealer. I've never even wanted a proper job. I studied fine art not to have a proper job. Swap Editions allows me to research, contextualise and present ideas that underpin my own methodologies. It is a vehicle to collaborate with artists and commission new work, while putting all emphasis of value within the collective artworks rather than their potential monetary status. As an initiative, it is also a subtle rebellion against the vastly over-professionalism of art practice by universities attempting to justify their jobs worth to students paying high fees rather than focus on the pursuits of knowledge and making quality artwork. For me, this career artist approach bypasses all the interesting stuff about being an artist and making art and falsely presents the vocation behind a facade of business that means admin. I hate admin, so in that respect, I aspire to be an unprofessional artist and make my career path follow on from work I make. I've always found collaborating with other artists quite easy, but negotiating ways into gallery programme increasingly difficult. So I started to think of ways to get around the system. Instead of forcing what I do best into an economic structure that I'm not good at, I focus solely on building a platform around the main commodity being the artwork itself. With Swap Editions, the model of multiple sets but limited quantity creates enough versions of each project to satisfy the mutual swapping of works between all participants, whilst creating a desirable package to exchange for an exhibition space and allows a first few spares to be gifted to public collections for legacy. It is an approach that has its limitation, as it mainly enables the transfer of artworks between artists. Much like a small group show, each published edition is launched with a gallery exhibition or public event, and the work joins a growing showcase of art multiples available to view online. Through invitation and open submission opportunities, I commission new works from both established and emerging artists, and these form an eclectic collection for each participating artist to own. For each published edition, several complete sets are gifted to high-profile international museums, collections and institutions to ensure a wide-reaching public legacy, and a complete edition is preserved as part of a growing Swap Editions archive. Personally, I keep a set myself. They are amongst some of my most treasured possessions. And so, my storage problem continues. Hold on, Lucy. I mean, it's not to be underestimated how difficult it actually is to read under a little bit of pressure. Yeah. So, yeah, well done. Um, Thanks, Charlie. So we've got a, a depiction here of um, one of the art artist swap edition events, um, where there's obviously a few, well, probably about seven or eight people. It's clearly not COVID. Yeah, exactly. It's pre-COVID. Yeah. Rule of six being broken there, but... Yeah, they've got like... Um, no masks to be seen. <laughs> no, exactly. So they've got like um, various different artworks in the middle of the sort of space and they're all sort of looking around the artworks. Um, Enjoying art in a crowded gallery. Yeah, looks very collaborative and yeah, very... Fun. Very fun. Not like I can do that anymore. Do you know what? I actually think this is my favourite spread. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It's very nicely designed. 
So we've got, um, on the left-hand page, we've got, from the Swap Archive, um, anti-Brexit voodoo dolls and other powerful objects by artist Dawn Wally. So depicted here, we've got, just sort of spilling over from the left-hand page onto the right-hand page, we've got a sculpture, um, and it's made up of various sort of um, Brexit propaganda, if you want to yeah. call it that. Um, so we've got free trade means lower prices as sort of the body of the sculpture. Vote leave. We've got vote leave with a magnism sort of on one arm and a John Smith's in the other. Vote leave, let's take control. And then propping up the sort of body as the legs, if you want, uh, we've got uh, Boris backs Britain, vote leave, 350 million, the EU takes every week, etc, etc. And then on the top, on the, on the sort of head of the sculpture, we've got um, Theresa May's uh, face. It looks like a black and white sort of image of Theresa May's face. And then she's got some sort of hair stuck on with glue. So then, yeah, on the le- so that's on the left-hand side. And then on the right-hand side, in the, in the top right-hand corner, Packs for Swap Editions number four, Brex Kit, designed and made by Ginny Davis and Barnaby B. Mills 2019. So here, you might have to help me with this, this one a little bit, we've got a sort of, how would you, how would you describe this? Um, an abstract photograph of what I can only assume is the Brex kit, um, which looks like a, almost looks like fishnet tights. Yeah, do you know what I thought it looked a bit like? A trampoline? Trampoline. Yeah. The sort of space in between two trampolines. Maybe it's potentially that. It's like I say, quite an abstract photograph. It's in um, a square format, which is obviously A nice quite blue nice. outline of a trampoline, perhaps, with a... We're really, really sorry, Ginny and Barnaby. Um, we love it as a photo it's a great photo but it's hard to describe in the context of the photo Um, so yeah swap editions and associated artworks are not for sale but a limited number available to swap information about the project is at www.swapartditions.com and at swapartditions on social media Um, I just would like to note as well that if any artists listening um Swap Editions is a really nice sort of initiative to get involved in if, say, you are interested in swapping your own art or collecting other work. Again, I suppose it's like a democratic way of collecting art because it's not, Mm -hmm. you don't need to buy it. So it negates the need. All you need is something to give in return, which is obviously kind of a bit like what Matthew Burroughs was saying. generous culture kind of thing. Yeah, and the the kind of hunter-gatherer approach of everyone sharing. Yeah, so that's a nice little alternative ecosystem. You might think it's a load of rubbish, but I think it's quite a nice one. Oh, wow, we've got a nice, a very nicely designed page next. Um, and this is for the Q&A with Max Haven. So we've got in on the top sort of half of the page, of the double page spread, we've got MAX, obviously Max. Um, and then on the bottom, we've got H-A-I-V-E-N. And they're all kind of like spaced out. So it's kind of like, it fills like the whole page. out the page, yeah. Um, and we've got an image in the middle of the double page spread, which is of... Justice and Divine Vengeance Pursuing Crime by Pierre Paul Prudhomme, 1806. Um, and just to say here, Q&A from the author of Revenge Capitalism and Art After Money, Money After Art. I would just like to note here, Max Haven isn't an artist. 
Um, I wouldn't actually call him a very creative person. He is an author, he's written some really interesting books. Art After Money and Money After Art is actually a really, really good book. Um, but we wanted to ask some more personal questions mm-hmm. that we kind of thought we wanted to know the answers to. He he has quite a pessimistic <laughs> view on the on the capitalist society we live in, but it is interesting nonetheless. So you take the questions, I'll take the answers. Okay. How do you think your research into the art market would differ if you approached it in the eyes of an artist? So one of the arguments I make in Art After Money, Money After Art is that in order for the art market to function, almost everyone in it needs to be acting in a kind of bad faith. The thing that gives art its market value is precisely its often hyperbolic rejection of that value. Art is art because it is supposed to be allergic to economic value and obeys some transcendental calling. For this reason, a urinal with the artist's signature can be worth astronomically more than the same model without it. Even when art is explicitly anti-capitalist, it still ends up participating. The antagonism to pricing is precisely what guarantees price. So artists, gallerists, dealers, collectors and everyone in the art food chain, including critics and intellectuals like me, necessarily need to be involved in maintaining the illusion of this antagonism. But of course, that antagonism is an anachronism and a fib. It's the emergence and proliferation of capitalist forms of money that give rise to the market for secular forms of art, singular works guaranteed by the signature of the artistic genius in the first place. Renaissance Italy, Golden Age Holland, Regency England, Bourgeois France, Capitalist New York, there is even room for people like me in this game, so I'm not exempt. Especially in the late 20th century, we theorists have a key role to play in legitimating those terms and ideas that render art contemporary and therefore of value. This is especially important after the so-called dematerialization of contemporary art when concepts, mass-produced objects, social relationships of or ephemeral performances were increasingly common. The critic and various venues for critical text have an important role in legitimating things as art. We are also tasked with scouting out the rebel, the rebel margins of the art world to signal new frontiers for the art market. For instance, in championing the work of outsider and radical artists. So I'm not outside of the economy of which I speak. Ultimately, if there is something that sets me apart, it is less that I'm a theorist and not an artist, but perhaps more importantly, that what I am trying to say is that there is no outside to the art market in some way. We're all entangled. For me, this reveals not the depravity of the art market as such, but the depravity of the whole system of capitalism, of which the art market is a curious but also demonstrative part. In so many ways, the art market reflects or is almost a parody of that broader capitalist logic, for instance. The way that it constantly seeks to enclose its crucial frontiers and co-opt anything and everything of value, or the way it transforms passion and individuality and flexibility in the romance of art into watchwords for new forms of exploitation. I suppose, in some way, the only thing that sets my perspective apart from an artist is that the piece of this puzzle I am tasked with producing is haunted by the spectre of truth rather than of beauty. I think plenty of artists have reached much of the same conclusion. Some have made art about it, many have quit art and are working in other fields, others keep doing art, but really only as a means to, in some way, redistribute the wealth that unfairly accumulates in the art world towards radical anti-capitalist objectives. Max yeah, Haven's going to be a hard one. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard reading, so, so um, 
Yeah. Bear with us. Bear with us. Many artists are concerned about the fragile economy we are entering in the post-pandemic world. How do you think the virus will affect museums, galleries and art institutions? And what impact will this have on emerging artists? I think the reality is that, if we're honest, the vast majority of people working as artists have never made any substantial any substantial money, at least not from their art. This even goes for those deemed talented and who achieve prestigious degrees, laudations and exhibitions. The market for art is really only structured to sustain the most popular artists, not artists as a whole. Um, Just to say, we're about to turn the page. On this page, we've got, on the bottom left-hand corner, we've got a little illustration of... Swords. Swords in a man's back. Um, Um, This is from his website, Max Haven's website. So if you want to see it, you can go to Max Haven's website. But yeah, it's a man laying face down on the floor with loads of swords in his back. Um, So going on to the next page. um, As long as there are segments of the capitalist class who reap in so much wealth, they don't know what to do with it. There will continue to be a viciously unfair market for contemporary art. Indeed, ironically, the outcome of the pandemic is likely to be even greater disparities in wealth in society, more super rich and therefore an even bigger art market once the initial jitters calm down. But that art market will only serve about 1% of those talented people who would consider themselves artists. Corporate looting of what remains of the welfare state looks like it will continue in many places, so I don't hold out much hope for public funding either. Museums, galleries and institutions are likely going to need to rely more and more on private donations, which always have their price. Arts administration workers are also likely to continue their rebellions and insist that industry can't be built on the backs of their exploitation and burnout which frankly is all that's keeping a huge number of institutions afloat. That all may sound pessimistic, but I'm actually optimistic because it means that the the old normal of inequality inequality and overwork and precarity is coming to a close, or at least being revealed for what it always was. Artists who have other sources of wealth, for instance from their family, from patrons or from other jobs, might do alright, but in a way this has always been the case. The shameful secret of the art world is how many artists have always survived thanks to one kind of nepotism or adjacent wealth or another. It's not that they're not talented, but let's face it, there's no shortage of talent out there. The rest of the artists are best off recognising themselves as proletarians and organising with other proletarians for things that will benefit proletarians in general. I don't mean that artists are proletarians in some sloganeering way. I mean it quite simply technically. People dependent on capitalism for their survival, like tens or hundreds of millions of other proletarians. Capitalism has no use for most artists' labour right now, and so is happy to leave them to die or fall on the mercy of what remains of the welfare state, or move into other fields. The alternative, I think, is for artists, as well as the institutions that genuinely care about them, to throw in their cause with popular struggles against capitalism and its terrors. For instance, this might include things like higher wages, reduced work weeks, basic incomes, free education, robust public services, including funding for arts. Um, This might be an overwhelming question, but if you feel you're able to, what would you propose as an alternative ecosystem to contest the current commercial art market? And can you see this being as influential and viable as the current structure? I have an unpopular opinion here, which is that I think the job of artists should actually be abolished. By this, I mean the idea of some people are designated as art makers to the exclusion of so many others are paid for it. I would like to live in a society where we use the powers of automation, imagination and justice to abolish work as we know it for everyone, by which I mean the exploitation of people's time for a wage in authoritarian condition. In a society where everyone could have their needs met without the blackmail of having to work at a job they hate or that is useless if not destructive for the world. 
I think everyone, including the people formerly known as artists, would have the time, creative freedom and support to develop their creative powers. On that basis, I think we could build institutions to replace or reform today's museums, galleries, art schools, to identify and celebrate the innovative, captivating and important creative work being done. As for the art market, I think the whole thing should just be abolished, frankly. I believe generally in reclaiming and redistributing wealth currently misappropriated by the rich, so that doesn't leave a huge market for art anyway. There is a market for art between public institutions which relies on a great deal on private donations, but this can surely be managed in a different way. In the short term, I am generally sceptical of efforts to build alternative art markets or new platforms for emerging artists. I mean, I want to change for many artists and want them to get what they need to survive, but ultimately the tendency is for such para-market initiatives to either collapse or worse, getting incorporated into the art market as such. I explore this theme at some length in Art After Money, Money After Art, and it has also been been passed by others, including Stefan Shukaitis, Pascal Gielan and Marina Vishmit. Capitalism learns from art in strange ways. Yesterday's radical avant-garde inspired tomorrow's restructuring of work and exploitation. So I'm sure that some artists or art intermediaries can devise a scheme to bypass, replace or re-engineer the way art is marketed and sold, or the way that the spoils are divided. But I'm equally sure that this will not actually represent any substantive change in the system as a whole, which will still be rife with exploitation. The winners and losers might change, but that is the nature of capitalism. New competitive ventures replace older models in all industries. What remains the same are the fundamental principles of private property, the imperative to work, exploitation and alienation for most people. Ultimately, we're at a historical turning point where I don't think artists and those who care about them should be thinking about how to try how to try navigate the art market or really any scheme based on the commodification of art. I feel we should be thinking about artists as living, breathing human beings and asking would ha- what would help them and all those other living, breathing human beings alive and allow us to thrive. I think oddly one of the mo- one of the only truly great things to accidentally emerge from the art world in the last decades has been a space for artists to think and dream about economics and experiment with radical new forms of economic mutual aid and activism this is especially important now Whew, that was hard hitting wasn't it <laughs> yes for me to try and read it i agree <laughs> um the last question is what advice would you give artists who are relying on unsteady income and are about to tackle the overwhelming nature of selling and trading their work at risk of sounding flippant protest unto writing for the dignity of all people and stand with all those whom capitalism makes worthless Success in the art market to the point where you might actually not have to work a precarious job or rely on someone else is like winning the lottery. It's as unlikely as it is grossly unfair to everyone else who has to lose for you to win. Success in the art market means you've won the favour of people who are destroying the planet. Why strive for that? Continue by all means to make art, please, but let go of the idea that it being a job on which you are dependent to make money in order to buy what you need to survive. Instead, join in struggles to abolish work and racial capitalism the things you need to survive as a human being, not as an artist. Those things don't come from the art market. They come from society at large. Food, housing, security, education, joy. And that's that. Wow. Wow, indeed. Um, I thought that is... Qu- some. It's, I personally just think that Max Haven is definitely providing food for thought. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's quite radical, but it's yeah, it's interesting. So abolish everything. Yeah, start again. End gatekeeper magazine now. Yeah, it's 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 another form of 
alternative forms of the art market which is deemed to fail so just quit just don't bother Um, (laughs) stop the recording now (laughs) Um, our last feature is Aline Benjaminson which on the left page um, is our Financial Times pink background uh, with her name Aline Benjaminson and a nice little red dot Um, she speaks a little bit about her work um, here and uh, the main feature for, for Aline is this grid which we'll talk about and it's on the right hand side of the page um, she says, I once spoke about my concern of the lack of RSVs and coverage for transport material and travel at an event at a prominent Dutch museum. Afterwards, the museum director commented saying they had no idea it was so bad. This gave me hope. If those who are in a position to decide and manage budgeting within cultural institutions aren't noticing the systematic underpayment of artists, then I thought this surely means that it should be made visible to them. It's with this sentiment that I decided to publish my accounting from the past three years of work with cultural institutions. I hope that being able to look at numbers like these makes what we already know about the state of artists' working conditions more tangible. Together with a few other artists and other cultural workers, I have been workshopping ways to do this. Our aim is to make a toolbox for artists with strategies to react to unfair labour conditions. We also wrote a manifesto that we call the Paid Artist Manifesto. Okay, so on the right-hand side, we've got a table here. Um, so on across the top of the, the sort of the horizontal axis, we've got date, organisation, job, remuneration in euros, prep slash production days, installation days, days present, travel slash transport covered, own production, expenses, new work, question mark, additional note. So the table here sort of depicts the labor and the the costs of um sort of producing artwork and being involved in art events um if you will so i don't know if you want to expand any more on yeah i mean um the full grid uh is available to view at aline benjamins um it's definitely one to look at and then on the next page we've got the the deep red again um, and it says, no more exhibitions without artist fees. Number two, no more artists booting the bill for installing, insuring, hosting, transportation or creating their work. And number three, an end to ex- expecting artists to talk about their work for free. Number four, an end to an artist organising and delivering events for free. Number five, an end to any artistic labour done for free. Number six, that charging a participation fee is irrelevant and that is all of them. Um, so we've got a couple of pages here. Um, starting on the left-hand side, where the money is made, 2017. Um, antenna, antenna on top of old water towers, radio masts, and abandoned apartment buildings. The sites depicted are not those one would usually associate with high finance. Yet this is where some of the biggest profits are being made today. Resolutely physical surfaces of an immaterial market. Here, profits are made at speeds exceeding the capacity of the human brain, guided by geometric lines of sight between microwave transmitters and receivers. The work documents where so-called high-frequency trading takes place. Artificial intelligence and algorithmic technology allow trading firms to make profits close to the speed of light. This type of trading represents around 70% of the activity on global stock exchanges. Again, very interesting. Financial times. Mm -hmm. Um, It goes 
uh, we sort of take that onto the next page, which is a double page spread, and in the middle um, is another segment of a Google Earth page uh, in reference to where the money is made. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on this is kind of, yeah on the, on the last second to last page we have another art market advert. Um, this time we've got the same phrase Gesamtkunstwerk on it. And on the t-shirt it says let me relax I will curate later. So it's the same <laughs> phrase as before. Um, again you can find these sort of comical caps at art-market.com And on the last uh, second to last, well it is the last page um, before the back cover Thank you for supporting Gatekeeper Copyright of all editorial content and images is held by publishers Gatekeeper magazine Reproduction in whole or part is forbidden without permission of the publisher Gatekeeper magazine cannot be held responsible for any loss or damage to unsolicited material The views expressed in the Gatekeeper sorry, in Gatekeeper, are not necessarily those of the publishers, editors or artists. And then copyright Gatekeeper 2020. And on the back, we have the um, illustration we described earlier of the bodybuilder, superhero, art student. Rethink how you can earn in the arts, reskill, learn about the art market, reboot your arts career. Um, Thank you for listening to us bumble on for and two yeah, hours if you got to the end well done um, I hope that kind of gave a little bit more insight about Gatekeeper magazine uh, and our journey of issue one transaction um, if you don't already you can follow us on Instagram at gatekeeperzine um, and if not if you don't have Instagram you can keep up to date with us on our website www.gatekeepermagazine.com Cool. Thanks for listening and we're going to go now because we're tired.